Rising concerns over climate change are spurring investments into clean energy to help bring the world closer to net zero. But where are we in that transition? And how is that path to decarbonization affecting investments in traditional oil and gas projects? We are at the beginning of a very long path, but at the start of that, we need to unlock investment. And more specifically, we think we need to unlock an extra $1 trillion per annum of investment in energy over the next five years. I'm Alison Nathan, and this is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. To help break down the economic path to net zero, I'm here with my colleague, Michaela De La Vigna, who is head of natural resources research for Goldman Sachs and EMEA. Michaela leads our research on what he's called carbonomics, which examines the economics of getting to a net zero carbon world. Michele, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Alison. Always a pleasure. So let's start with the macro backdrop. Europe is facing an affordability crisis as the continent struggles to secure energy supply. That largely owes to Russia's invasion of Ukraine that disrupted energy flows to the continent. But that supply shock also raised questions about energy sustainability and the trade-offs needed to get to net zero. So first, give us the background on how we got here. So... Alison, I think you're right. Everything comes from the Russian-Ukraine invasion. But in many ways, this has just been a catalyst which exposes weaknesses of the energy system which have been built up over the last 15 years. And specifically, I think there's three problems here that we need to address. The first one is diversification of supply. Europe has been relying on Russian gas for 30-40% of its gas. And the main reason is that it has stopped signing long-term contracts for LNG supply a decade ago, and therefore LNG was all contracted to Asia and not to Europe. Secondly, we've been underinvesting structurally in the energy industry for a long time. If you take all of primary energy, so not only hydrocarbons, but also renewables and power networks, we used to spend $2 trillion per annum on a global basis. And in the last few years, that number has come down to $1.5 trillion. So despite the growing world population, we've reduced the level of energy investment. And this has consumed spare capacity across the system. We currently estimate we have the lowest OPEC spare capacity in almost two decades, the lowest oil inventories in almost two decades, and that we've effectively consumed half of the reserve life in the oil sector. So underinvestment, lack of commitment on long-term supply contracts in gas, and lack of diversifications have really been at the core of this problem. So amid this much tighter energy supply environment and higher price environment, we've heard a lot about the need to find a new balance between securing affordable energy and transitioning to a world without oil and gas. Where are we in achieving that balance? We have not made a lot of headroom to achieve that balance. I think, first of all, but we'll probably come back to this, we need more investment in both traditional hydrocarbons and in renewables. And then on top of it, we need to invest on stability for seasonality and intermittency. And that's when green hydrogen and batteries and gas as a backup come in as well. So my sense is, we are at the beginning of a very long path, but at the start of that, we need to unlock investment. And more specifically, we think we need to unlock an extra $1 trillion per annum of investment 
in energy over the next five years. And so how do we do that? How do we unlock that investment? I think there's three main ways to achieve it. The first one is to create regulatory certainty around carbon on a global basis, ideally with the framework on global carbon pricing. I see very few signs of that happening at the moment. The second is to create specific incentives for new investment, like the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which make renewables and hydrogen and bioenergy profitable through specific incentives. And then the third one is for the market to start to de-risk the growth profile of some of these companies through lower cost of capital. Right now, we estimate the cost of capital for long cycle new oil developments is about 20%. With that cost of capital, it's very difficult to unlock new investments. And so my sense is we need these three drivers to unlock that incremental capital. And right now, I see little signs of it happening. And so where do you think that capital is most likely or needs to come from? Will it come from government? Will it come from corporates, investors? I think most of it will need to come from investors and corporates on the back of a better regulation from government. Let me give you an example. Right now, the three global largest emitting sectors, which are heavy industry, heavy transport and oil and gas, are reinvesting between 20 and 40% less of their cash flow in their business because of uncertainty around global regulation, especially on carbon and on decarbonization. Regulatory certainty could bring back their reinvestment rates to the long-term history, and that by itself could unlock half a trillion dollar per annum on a global basis. And so if we manage to unlock that capital, where should it be directed to that will accelerate this process and most efficient in getting us to affordable, clean energy supply? I think in three main areas. First of all, renewables. I think renewable power has the ability to be a real revolution on a global basis from the point of view of new capex and new supply. But it will not be enough. Renewable power, especially solar, has issues with intermittency, think day and night, and seasonality, think summer versus winter. And therefore, we need technologies who can assure a stable stream of power when the consumer needs it. Those are batteries for intermittency and green hydrogen for seasonality. And then I still think we need more gas to just accelerate the substitution of coal, which is the largest global emitter at the moment. The problem of the current affordability crisis and high gas prices is that we're going back to coal and therefore emissions are rising again just when we need to start to see them declining if we want to be within two degrees of global warming as laid out by the Paris Agreement. So the current energy affordability and security crisis has led to new policies in Europe and the U.S. We have the Repower EU in Europe. We have the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. So how significant are these policies and how can they help accelerate the path to net zero? They're very significant. If we look at the Repower EU regulation, it's effectively implementing the Fit for 55 strategy for a 55% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030 
and it is implemented country by country, it offers some attractive incentives for some of the low carbon technologies. But the real breakthrough in the last year has been the Inflation Reduction Act, which in the US has created a set of incentives for clean tech that reach almost $400 billion and which are a complete breakthrough in the economics of pretty much every decarbonization technology from electric vehicles and batteries to renewable power, hydrogen, carbon capture, bioenergy, and especially for carbon capture and green hydrogen, two technologies which have struggled in the past with economics. This is a complete breakthrough in incentives and economics. So we think both of these initiatives are very important, but without doubt, the Inflation Reduction Act has been the revolutionary technology from a clean tech perspective and the most important one we've seen in over a decade. Let's dig a little bit more into that carbonomics cost curve that you and your team developed and you just mentioned in terms of how the stack has been moving recently on the back of some of this policy. First, just give us a quick reminder of what that cost curve measures and how it works. Ellison, it's been a painful exercise to put it together. We've analyzed a hundred different technologies of decarbonization and we've estimated the carbon price at which each of those technologies would be profitable today. And so effectively, it gives us a cost curve like for any other commodity, but where the reference point is the carbon price. And we can use this curve in many ways. We can use it to try to think about the right carbon price to get us to net zero, which would probably be somewhere between $100 and $200 per ton on our current curve. And we can also look at how this cost curve changes over time. Is it getting cheaper or more expensive to decarbonize? And which technologies are improving more than others on the cost curve? So, for instance, this year, we've seen the technologies that substitute natural gas making the biggest improvement on the cost curve. So green hydrogen, biogas, energy efficiency have tremendously improved on the cost curve. But interestingly, those that substitute oil, mostly electric vehicles and biofuels, have actually deteriorated and moved higher on that cost curve. So there's a lot that we can do on the cost curve, but the foundation of it really is the modeling of the economics of decarbonization through these 100 different technologies available. And so what drives that shift towards, you just mentioned, natural gas-related technology, looking more affordable, oil ones, less. Give us a flavor of the economics that drive that relative shift. A few years ago, when we started to introduce this curve, the biggest move was driven by the cost of clean tech that was becoming cheaper, mostly through standardization of technologies like solar and wind. Unfortunately, in the last two years, that was no longer the case. Actually, we've seen severe cost inflation in places like batteries, solar panel and wind. So what's driving the improvements in the economics of decarbonization is just the higher cost of hydrocarbons, the higher cost of oil, of gas or coal. In many ways, I would say hydrocarbon prices are doing the job that carbon prices should do. But unfortunately, we've seen very little policy momentum on that front. And so what I'm hearing you saying is that it's not that the cost of these clean energy technologies have come down. It's that their substitutes, their competitors, the cost of hydrocarbons have come up. So on a relative basis, these technologies are looking more attractive. Exactly. And this is what in many ways we refer to as 
the revenge of the old carbon economy. Effectively, through underinvestment, the prices of oil, gas, coal are going higher, and that ends up accelerating the energy transition. So it all happens through higher hydrocarbon prices, which we believe will probably be a reality that will last for most of this decade. And Michele, as we're sitting here talking, there are a number of broader efforts and discussions underway to address climate change. The COP27 International Climate Conference in Egypt is wrapping up and you have an imminent conference on carbonomics taking place. Let's start with COP27. What are some of the big themes coming out of that summit? So COP27 is trying to address one of the key issues that were not really in focus at COP26 which is loss and damage, and more specifically, how the Western world can help finance the emerging markets effort to adapt to climate change and to react to climate disasters. So it's more about climate adaptation, something that, to be fair, the previous COPs did not spend a huge amount of time on, and more about social justice between DMs and EMs which are really important themes, especially as the likelihood of keeping global warming below one and a half degrees are becoming increasingly unlikely each year that we continue to see emissions rise. My sense is that next year's COP, so COP28, will come back and focus more on decarbonization and on clean tech technologies. But this COP held in Cairo, I think, was mostly about adaptation problems, and about loss and damage. And what do you hope to achieve at the Goldman Sachs Carbonomics Conference? We're very excited. We will have about 1,000 investors in our London office meeting with 30 corporates and some of the key policymakers. And the core of the discussion will really be how can we unlock the potential from capital markets and corporate capex to improve the economics of decarbonization, foster clean tech innovation, and ultimately help to achieve net zero carbon in a way that is just, that is economically affordable, and that is as quick as possible and consistent with the aims of the Paris Agreement. And we are going to have two main tracks. On one, we're going to have the CEOs of some of the world's largest companies thinking about energy transition and financing. And then we're going to have a track of clean tech innovators who are the leaders in green hydrogen, in bioenergy, in carbon capture, in fusion, in circular economy. So we think it's going to be a really exciting day with hopefully a lot of ideas coming out that can help us on an affordable path to net zero. It's clear given the degree of complexity of this problem that it really is a global problem and it requires a global solution. That said, how are regional differences playing out in this move towards decarbonization? Is one region much more ahead? It used to be Europe was always leading the way. Is that still the case? It's definitely a global problem that needs a global solution, but there is no global solution at the moment. There's been zero progress towards a global agreement on carbon pricing, including a potential framework for border adjustment. And so each country is going its own way. You're correct. Europe was at the forefront from a regulatory and incentive perspective. I think actually the US with the Inflation Reduction Act 
is now becoming the country where clean tech applications are most profitable and will be done in the larger scale. So the US has a real chance of regaining leadership in clean tech technologies, having been a little bit on the side for the last 10, 15 years. And so just to end where we started, as you think about this, you spent so much time, Achille, thinking about this problem and how to solve it. In your view, at this stage, given everything you know, how can we best leverage this current crisis to create a better energy system in the long term and eventually achieve that goal of net zero, which is so important to our future? I think every key technological innovation tends to come from a crisis and tends to come from an issue of affordability of the existing technologies. So in many ways, this crisis could be the beginning of a new energy system, which is renewables-based and with hydrogen, bioenergy and circular economy, making it sustainable and allowing a path to net zero that is more affordable, more local and more sustainable. So my sense is probably in 10 years time, we will look back and this will be the beginning of a major technological change that can bring us towards net zero. But to get there, we need better regulation. And I think we need better coordination on a global basis, including on a global carbon price framework. McKelly, thanks for joining us. It's always great to talk to you about these important issues. I'm sure this won't be the end of our conversation. And Good luck with the conference. Thank you, Alison. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, which was recorded on Thursday, November 17th, 2022. If you enjoyed this show, we hope you follow on your platform of choice and tune in next week for another episode. Make sure to share and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.